You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th, hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Hey everyone, it's James Crepia, Oregon Ducks beat reporter for the Oregonian and Oregon Live, bringing you the latest edition of the Ducks Confidential Podcast. Lots to go over on this Friday ahead of Oregon and Cal in Berkeley on Saturday. Obviously, both men's and women's basketball seasons getting underway this week as well. We'll cover all three sports. We'll obviously spend a big chunk of time on football as the Ducks try to respond and get back on the winning side of things after losing at Oregon State last week. We'll go into a little bit of a follow-up of that game in in terms of how it will feed into this game, uh, things that the Ducks have to correct and the like, and like I say, get into things on both the men's and women's basketball front as well. Going back to last week's game and the loss at Oregon State, certainly a difficult one for fans and a rivalry and all those things uh, that go with it. It's always difficult. Uh, That's part of any rivalry. It's also part of what makes rivalries fun is when they're competitive. And obviously it had been a series that Oregon dominated and has dominated for the better part of the last 12 years. And it was very lopsided. And obviously the last couple of years, things had gotten more competitive and Oregon State breaks through. This time, Jamar Jefferson has a monumental performance, uh, absolutely terrific performance, one of the best we've seen in college football this year from a running back. Uh, massive, massive showing for him starting out out of the gates with an 82-yard touchdown run and really didn't get slowed down very much of the entire night. And obviously we've chronicled that uh, on Oregon Live the better part of the week and in the Oregonian as well. Of just so many things that went on that night in terms of the run defense uh, in particular, particularly on the interior of the defensive line, uh, that's been a bugaboo, obviously, for the Ducks this entire season. Uh, It's been uncharacteristic compared to a year ago. So you go from last year where this defense was performing and in some areas was expected to be better than a year ago. Obviously, entering the season, the thought was in the offseason that the secondary would be even better. Opt-outs made some things a little bit different there. But the defense, the secondary has not been the issue uh, this year. The issue has been in the front seven, in particular on the front on the defensive line. Uh, mainly on the three true defensive line positions because that's where you kind of break off the either stud end or even if you want to break away the defensive end spot. Uh, it's really on the interior of the defensive line where there have been some issues, particularly against the run. That doesn't absolve every other which position. There's obviously plenty of things to go around. But in terms of where Oregon's defensive regression has been all season and obviously cost them dearly last week against Oregon State, was it stopping the run? at creating negative plays, both against the run and the pass. 
Hasn't been enough of that. Has not been enough of that at all. And that's been the case in each of the four games. And like I say, it cost them very, very dearly uh, in a loss to Oregon State, where I know there's plenty to take away from and say, oh, well, the offense could have converted. The offense could have picked up a first down late. This offense is leading the Pac-12 in scoring. It's leading the Pac-12 in total yards. It's second in passing. It's third in rushing. It's the most efficient offense in the league. And you could say, if not for turnovers, obviously turnovers are bad. That goes without saying you don't just throw them out the window. Oregon State came away with a couple of takeaways. Very big. The last one we don't count because it's the final play of the game. Uh, It looks the same in the box score, but we know it wasn't. The two interceptions were big, but they did not decide the game. The inability to pick up the first down, obviously costly. No question about it. But in and of itself doesn't mean that Oregon is going to lose. The defense still could come up with a stop. Special teams could come up with a longer punt. All sorts of things came up along the way, particularly in the second half of that game. But what was the consistent issue all night long? What has been the consistent issue all four weeks of this season? It's been the inability to stop the run and contain the run against players who Oregon knew it had to contain. That's been the thing that's been somewhat surprising is against running backs, whether it be Demetric Felton and UCLA, whether it be uh, Jamar Jefferson and Oregon State, these were running backs that Oregon knew they had to contain, and they were unable to do so. Now, you know, you get through week one where it's Stanford, and you say, well, Stanford plays a certain way. We know they're going to play run heavy. You know they're going to play ball control. You know they're going to try to uh, eat away at the clock. Okay, you know, to a point. And, yes, obviously Nathaniel Pete had the 173-yard run, but in terms of long runs, other than that one play, Oregon did a pretty good job at containing Stanford, all told. Yes, that one play skews things. You don't take it away. Obviously, Stanford broke the play. But outside of that, Oregon did a fairly decent job. Yes, they still had a 100-yard rusher without that with Austin Jones. But not to say you take it, but you know that Stanford is going to do certain things. Now, having said that, it looks worse now. And not just because of how Oregon's defense has done against the run since, but because Cal just stopped Stanford. And Cal's defensive line is unbelievably thin. Their entire defensive line played every snap in that game last week and has not been particularly good before that. Yes, it's a rivalry game. Yeah, they can be motivated, but motivated or not, you're going to get gassed. You're going to get fatigued uh, if you're not getting subbed out at all. And yet, Cal was able to contain Stanford uh, significantly better than Oregon did. So like I say, that performance looks worse in retrospect. Against Washington State, all right, it's not the air raid. It's the run and shoot. It's something different. You have to pay more attention to Jaden Delora. And obviously he was pretty prolific and the passing game was prolific. But again, running back wise, Deion McIntosh comes up with 92 yards and a score. Yeah, the rush, you know, yards per rush is there. But Oregon was spying a lot in terms of pressure on the quarterback on Delora. They were focused more on keeping him in the pocket. They didn't want him to escape with his legs. He didn't. So there were some successes even while they just couldn't quite get enough pressure on Jaden Delora. And Stanford made it a point to get the ball out very, very quickly with their backup quarterback. So when we talk about both stopping the run and creating negative plays and disruption in the backfield, the first two games in and of themselves, had their moments of positivity, had their moments of objectively saying, 
all right, they're not quite there, but it may not be crazy alarming just yet. Where it crossed the threshold to where there was legitimate, significant concerns certainly came up against UCLA. One, UCLA and Chip Kelly's coaching staff came up with a terrific game plan, starting off with the triple option, which uh, Andy Avalos had struggled with years ago at Boise State early on against Air Force in New Mexico. Previous, you know, This goes back many years. Obviously, he corrected that as the years went on. But because it was not something that UCLA had shown, hey, they come into the game. How do they prepare in the offseason? They say, look, we got to do something different. And turns out they were without Dorian Thompson-Robinson as well. If he was there, frankly, UCLA maybe win that game. But, okay, he's not. Felton is. Britton Brown is. And they had a spectacular running performance. Absolutely terrific running performance. And it wasn't just the triple option that was doing it. Obviously, there were plenty of instances where whether it was the triple option, whether it was certain other formations that they were throwing out there uh, and unbalanced numbers that were throwing Oregon's defense off. And then the implementation of tempo at certain times when they got into third and manageable and third and short, third and four or less, UCLA converted at a really, really significant clip. Uh, on third and four or less, they were six of nine in that game. So you go, well, how did that game stay competitive as long as it did? Well, one team ran the ball unbelievably well and converted. Didn't just run the ball well by getting big chunk plays and that was it and it was feast or famine. No, they were consistently hitting significant gains. And then in third and manageable, converting and extending drives. Too many sustained drives. Way too many. And yeah, Oregon came away with some takeaways defensively. Yes, and obviously one of them on special teams as well. They led the points. That part was good compared to the prior two weeks. But the issue of the run defense, the issue of the inability to create negative plays, the issue of not creating enough pressure on the quarterback still presented itself. Yes, you had the pick six before halftime. Shifted the course of the entire game certainly, and that came with pressure on the quarterback, obviously. doesn't necessarily show up that way in the box score, but we all know that Brandon Dorless had a big hit on Chase Griffin to set up that interception in the pick six from Jordan Happel. But in totality, not enough disruption in the backfield. And after three weeks of seeing it, again, with the first two where you could not create caveats, you don't have to create caveats, you just understand there may have been some circumstances that either Stanford is ball control, Stanford always loves to run, Stanford's always going to be stout on the run, and they have a pretty good offensive line, even without Walker Little at left tackle this year. Okay, and like I say, Washington State, different looking offense, and all, all told, did not have a ton of explosive plays in the run game necessarily. It was much more in the passing game. UCLA clearly exposed some things, both in terms of schematically and strategically, but also uh, some issues in terms of personnel that Oregon was having that other the first two opponents clearly took some advantage of. UCLA took it to the next level. And that leads us to last week where Oregon State, it didn't need to go out on a limb and implement all kinds of formations or things like that. It wasn't even necessarily tempo and strategy from second to third down and things. No. Frankly, early on, Oregon State was not converting on third and short early in the game, and it was getting away from them. As the game went on, they were doing a better job converting on third and short. They extended drives more in the second half, and in the second half, that was really the tail of the tape, was the second half 
not just because Oregon State wins in the second half, but Oregon State, how did they win in the second half? 50 offensive plays and over 20 minutes of time of possession. That's a credit both to Oregon State's offense, especially to Jamar Jefferson, and yes, to Tristan Jebby as well, and of course their coaching staff, but mainly pointing out that the first and second down defenses were not creating disruption, were not getting the stops, were not getting the pressures on the quarterback. Without that, Oregon State was able to keep the sticks moving, keep the clock running, and obviously found their way in the end zone several times. And there you have it in a 41-38 loss. Again, that's not to say that there weren't any other issues in the game, but when your offense scores 38 points and you have a defense that last year was in the top 15 in most every major statistic, you're expecting to win that game. But this defense has had its issues this year. We've obviously examined them. We've discussed them here now, but we've also written about them extensively on OregonLive.com. This week and in the prior couple of weeks, but with each passing week as they continue to fester, whether it be tackling, whether it be, like I say, interior defensive line, where the production just hasn't been there. But on the edges, the defense has been good. That's why I say you can really pinpoint it more to the interior because Kayvon Thibodeau is becoming an all-around player. He did get home last week for his first sack of the season. It was the only sack Oregon had. And he was double teamed on the play. Noah Sewell had a couple of tackles for loss. Those were the only three tackles for loss that the Ducks had last week with those three plays. Now, the inside linebackers, they had a bunch of tackles. And like I say, Sewell had two for loss. But the position was stretched thin by depth as guys went down. Drew Mathis went down. Obviously, we know Justin Flo's out already. So they were stretched thin in terms of depth there. In the secondary, Nick Pickett goes down. Jamal Hill didn't play. Wasn't available. Steve Stevens was coming back uh, from being out the prior week. So the defense was stretched thin in the secondary. It was stretched thin in the linebacking core. And when you go 50 plays in a half and sustain drives in a half multiple times, hey, it really doesn't matter who the opponent is. That's going to be brutal on any defense, any defense. You start crossing the threshold of more than 40, but especially more than 45 plays and a half, that's where deterioration in terms of quality of play happens. It's, it, that's where fatigue sets in. It just is what it is. I mean, there's, there's no way around that. Um, these are human beings. This is not avatars in a video game. People get gassed. That's the way it goes. Having said that, in terms of going forward to this week's game against Cal, where can Oregon look to improve? How can Oregon look to address some of the issues that presented themselves, obviously, last week against Oregon State, or in the case of the run defense, all season? Well, for one, you could see some, I'm not saying there will be, but maybe there's some personnel adjustments, uh, perhaps. We obviously saw some formation uh, things that were a little bit different last week. Sometimes it produced results, sometimes it didn't. In terms of the edges, like I say, Kayvon Thibodeau is doing well. Adrian Jackson, uh, who's obviously a third-down situational pass rusher and has also come in in some other spots as well, sounds like he's going to be out this week, but he had been playing well in the situations he was in there for. Andrew Fallu, whether it be in the dime package or whether he's in uh, at the stud position, has played well. Mace Funa has played well. So plenty of the edge guys are doing just fine. 
with Jamal Hill coming back in the secondary, Nick Pickett uh, back in practice and presumably back in the starting lineup once again. The secondary should be at full strength. They should have a bit more depth there compared to how they ended the game a week ago. We'll see about the inside linebacker position uh, and whether or not Drew Mathis is able to go uh, this week or not. But obviously there is some there are there is some additional depth there, but it's just not anywhere near what it could have been in terms of entering the season compared to whether it's Samson New uh, not taking part in the season. Justin Flo going down with an injury, and now Drew Mathis potentially not being available as well. You know, you take three guys out of any position group, that's you know that's going to knock out some death pretty quickly. Uh, so some positions to monitor. But in terms of the defensive line and going up against a team like Cal, who's coming off a terrific rushing performance against Stanford uh, on both sides, like I say, defensively they contained Stanford. Offensively, they ran for over 240 yards. Uh, a terrific performance by Cal, who has a deep running back core. And Christopher Brown Jr. hasn't been fully healthy in a game yet this season. Um, but he's getting healthier as time goes on. Well, Oregon's going to have to have some answers there. Now, having said that, Cal's offensive line, which may get a couple of its tackles back this week, even if it does, Oregon's defensive line across the board is more talented than Cal's offensive line. That's just a statement of fact. That's reality. The future pros are on the Oregon side of the line of scrimmage in that matchup, not on the Cal side entering this game. Cal's offensive line, yes, I know there were some backups. Yes, I know they were limited in practice. This isn't pointing fingers or uh, uh, weighing in and and beating up on uh, a team or individuals here. It's not the point. Statistically, Cal's offensive line has been struggling mightily in this season. They have allowed the most tackles for loss per game, even with only three games. They've allowed them on the Pac-12. And the second most sacks with 11. All right, yeah, I realize UCLA was the first opponent, and they've one hand created a lot of pressure, as Oregon knows full well. And, again, Cal did not have... Uh, full weeks of preparation and time of preparation either for the game or in terms of practice with the offensive line and the defensive line practicing against each other. Even when you take that game out of the mix, Cal's offensive line has struggled, and it has been a position that has struggled before, either due to injury or any number of issues. But like we were talking about with Oregon's injuries, injuries happen in football. Injuries happen in sport. You have to be able to go more than five deep on the line or six deep for that matter, on the line, and feel at least competent enough to where you're not going to fall off and be the worst performing unit in the league. Well, again, even if they get their top-end guys back, Oregon has the talent advantage there. So in terms of can Oregon's defense get back on track against the run, albeit against a running back core that, like I say, is talented, is deep, Damian Moore, freshman running back for the Bears, has gotten off to a nice start. Marcel Dancy, second there, and Christopher Brown Jr., like I say, don't look at the numbers this year for him because he hasn't been healthy yet. He is really the lead bell cow back in that running back core. And if at full health, he's the starter. A three-deep running back core that is talented, but behind an offensive line that is not, not great, at the very least, this is a group, frankly, that Oregon should be able to contain. And they have before. They did last year. Now, again, 
Cal's O-line was banged up last year, too. But this is a group that Oregon's got to contain. I know they've dealt with their struggles these first four games, but this is a group that, in terms of talent, if Oregon is going to right this ship in terms of the ability to contain the run and create pressure, both against the run and against the pass, this is the week to do it. This has got to be the opponent, not just because Cal's winless. Like I say, I don't put all the stock in, in terms of their wins and losses this season, particularly against UCLA. They performed well against Stanford. All right. It's not like the kicker went out there hoping to get the uh, PAT blocked. or you know, that's, that's not how it goes late. And against Oregon State, like I said, what are you going to say? <laughs> the Cal defense couldn't contain Jamar Jefferson after what Oregon just did? So, again, they're 0-3, but you know that they play good defense. Last year's game was 17-7, and it was ugly, and Cal led at halftime 7-0. Well, Oregon's offense is performing really well, really well, spectacularly so in a lot of statistical areas. And doing so, in some cases, whether it be the first couple of games when the tight end core was very thin in terms of depth, or the last several games without Micah Pittman, without major weapons in the lineup, this offense is still unbelievably potent. Now Cal's defense, like I say, on the defensive line, They've been thin in terms of depth, but at linebacker, they have some talent at edge rusher uh, with Cameron Good, one of the better players there. Kwani Dang at weak side linebacker is, I realize Evan Weaver got all the attention last year and deservedly so, but Dang was a unbelievably productive inside linebacker for Cal last year. Now, a lot of that was boosted by the fact that he played alongside Weaver and Weaver drew so much attention, but nevertheless, Deng was productive. He's productive this year. Not at the same rate, but, you know, it's hard to replicate when you lose a teammate as good as Evan Weaver was and productive as Evan Weaver was. But fine. Those are two of the better defenders that Oregon's going to face. And that doesn't even include yet Cameron Bynum, who is far and away, it's not even a debate, the best cornerback that Oregon has faced so far this season. It's not even close. Bynum is by far and away the best opposing cornerback that Oregon's receivers will play this season to date. Uh, and we'll see about next week with Washington. We'll, you know, we'll get into that game more next week. But in terms of entering this game, he is going to be the toughest matchup that they face so far. So if Oregon has Micah Pittman back, and he certainly is expected to be, if Oregon has Spencer Webb back, and he might be, or Cam McCormick, who I know we've been talking about for far too long, and believe me, you know, hey, uh, you can only imagine how uh, Cam and, and his family feel about you know his, his very, very long journey back onto the field. But if any additional weapons beyond Micah Pittman can get back on the field for the Ducks, the offense gets that much more potentially explosive. And like I say, is already arguably the most explosive and best offense in the Pac-12 as it stands. And if it weren't for the turnovers, it would be, my goodness. I mean, some of these numbers would be hard to fathom. So the offense is, like I say, not really the issue here. It's been about the defense as good as it was a year ago. That's what makes these numbers and this performance stand out in such stark contrast. Uh, so do I think that they'll be able to make some of the changes? Yeah. Uh, not only because we've seen it before from Andy Avalos in this defense and some of these very same players, but especially because of the matchup. If they were going up against a better opponent uh, with a lot more prolific offense, 
that didn't have to deal with as many injuries or something or, or guys coming back in the lineup or you name it. I go, you know, man, I'm just not sure. But with this game, with this lineup with the Bears, who, again, and I respect Justin Wilcox and his coaching staff and Bill Musgrave on their offense and everything, it's just that as good as Chase Garbers can be, as prolific uh, a running back and tougher running back as Christopher Brown Jr. can be, I'm just not convinced that Cal's offense is going to pose a major threat here. And ultimately, even if they're able to find some success, I think Oregon's offense is going to find more than enough success to where Cal's not going to be able to keep up. But I don't view this game as a shootout. I think both teams are going to look to run the ball, uh, not just to control the clock and control time of possession and ball control and game control and things like that. But yeah, to prevent the other team from getting the ball, which is part of ball control and and game control. But I think that as much as Oregon can play with the lead comfortably, that all of a sudden the defense can take a little bit of a different approach compared to as the positions it's been in these first few weeks. Now, again, those are positions it has created for itself. So this is a unit that has got to find some answers, has got to have some answers this week first and foremost because let's call it what it is, folks. If the answers aren't there against Cal for all the reasons we already outlined in terms of their inability to stop uh, negative plays and the issues that they've had on offense, and like even if you take the UCLA game and put it aside, if they're unable to find answers and even still win, it is going to be very hard for <laughs> – anybody on the outside to enter next week and a de facto division title game feeling terribly confident about the Ducks against the Huskies. I mean, you got to call that what it is. Washington's offense, while it has hardly hit on full cylinders, you know that they are prolific in the run game. You know that they're well coached as a team, even if the offense is under a new coordinator. And frankly, we may not know everything just yet with a young quarterback and the like. But they have looked good at times. They've looked spotty at times as well. But if Oregon is unable to find answers at stopping Cal's run game after four straight weeks already, if it becomes a fifth week, then neck you know, that then there's a really, really major problem. And it's already big enough, but it could be even bigger. Uh, if they're unable to do it this week, I do think they will be able to find some far more success. But I don't know what far I don't know how to define far more success this year. And in terms of the tackling and everything, this isn't to write it off. This isn't to excuse it. This isn't to say accept it. But if you watch enough college football this season, you've seen tackling is an issue everywhere this year. Everywhere, there are very few teams not experiencing issues with tackling on defense. And scoring is up across the board in college football this year. Uh, Yards are up. Offensive production is up across the board this year. And while that could be said most years in the last five to ten years, this year it's up particularly so. And, there's again, there's all sorts of factors there. Uh, You can come up with any number of causes. But the bottom line is, again, don't just say accept it. Not for a team that prided itself – uh, on being as stout as it was a year ago and as effective as it was and, and efficient as it was uh, defensively and sound as it was at tackling defensively. No, there's got to be some corrections. But that's why they play the game. We'll obviously see on Saturday how it plays out. But I do think Oregon obviously has the decided talent advantage 
I do think it's going to be a run-centric kind of game, probably for both sides. Uh, but obviously the ability for more explosive plays certainly is in favor of Oregon's offense. So if it, even if Cal's offense is able to find some success and the defense uh, is not there for the Ducks uh, yet again, I just see that the Ducks' offense is just too potent uh, for Cal's defense to contain. And I don't think Cal's offense, even if it finds some success, will not be able to do so enough consistently to keep up with Oregon's offense. But that's how I see it on the football side. We'll get to the basketball side here in just a second. Oregon men's basketball opens up with a season opener, albeit a week later. But after you've waited over 250, 260 plus days, what's a week, right? Uh, So after 271 days, Oregon opens up the 2020-21 men's basketball season with a loss to Missouri. But before the game, we all get word that Will Richardson will be out for six weeks following uh, surgery on his left thumb for an injury he sustained earlier in the week. Uh, Obviously, wish Will Richardson a speedy recovery uh, and a full recovery as fast as possible. Uh, Of all the times to come down with an injury, no less. Uh, (laughs) Hardly uh, opportune, to say the least. So the Ducks were going to have some issues at point guard. You knew that that was going to be the case as soon as you heard word uh, that Richardson was hurt, and they did. They did, particularly in the first half. It was there. Was that in and of itself the reason why they lost the game? No, not entirely. Um, It definitely was a disjointed uh, offense, and Dana Allman said as much. After the game, he said they looked unorganized. They were unorganized, and he took the onus on that. He said, hey, i got to prepare these guys better. Richardson goes down. It's a short week. It's a short prep time for Morty Hardy and Jalen Terry to be in that position. But they got to be ready. they got to be ready. And, you know, coach puts it on himself. And he has plenty of times before in instances like this. So that will be an interesting area to see ahead of Friday's game against Seton Hall. How do the point guards respond? That's one. Two to the other side of the combination that is always pivotal uh, in college basketball, especially point guard. We talk about how about at the five position, Folly Dante Altman also saying after the game, Folly didn't have a good game in the first half really uh, just was not engaged uh, enough, not nearly enough. Didn't do nearly enough. Uh, Only took one shot, had one defensive rebound, in nine minutes, that's not going to be good enough uh, for a player who they're looking for a lot for throughout the course of this season. Now, it's game one. It's not to overreact. It's not to get way ahead of skis and make a bunch of declarations after one game. It is the season opener. Okay. And it's an unusual off season, as we all well know. All right. Those are some of the things to see how do they go about addressing it heading into Friday's game. The positives and major positives from Wednesday's game, albeit in loss. Eugene Omarui puts forth not just an unbelievable performance, a career performance for him with 31 points, 11 rebounds, 8th career double-double. Absolutely enormous performance. Best in a debut uh, for an Oregon player. And in the last, I believe it's 15 or 20 years, the note was, Uh, for a player to have 30-plus points and 10-plus rebounds in a game in their debut at a school. He's one of just three players in major college basketball to do that. 
mean, that's unbelievable. And this isn't something totally out of left field by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, those of us who are around the program cover the team, even last year, while uh, Omarui and Eric Williams Jr. were sitting out uh, as transfers last year, were hearing throughout the course of the season that, hey, you know, obviously they can't help us right now, but uh, those guys going to be pretty good now. Uh, they're they're really going to be good, you know, next year. That's what we were hearing last year from the coaching staff, from teammates, from you name it. Well, turns out uh, everyone was right, <laughs> very, very, very much so. And that's, again, not to make declarations after one game because it's not one game when we're talking about transfers. Uh, Omar Rui has quite the resume. He was coming in uh, out of Rutgers, out of the Big Ten, as a productive player, over 13 points, seven rebounds while he was there. So coming out here, Dana Altman said he expected him to be a double-figure scorer and probably a significant rebounder. But in terms of checking all the boxes that Dana Altman looks for uh, in terms of effort, in terms of offensive rebounding, in terms of taking charges on defense, in terms of uh, putback buckets, uh, three-point shooting, getting to the line and converting free throws, and if you want to just check every single box in the uh, Dana Altman, you know, hierarchy of needs in basketball, uh, <laughs> I'd say Eugene Omarui pretty much hit on all cylinders uh, in his very first game. So, no, you can't expect 31 points every night. That's just outlandish. But, my goodness, uh, that was a absolutely incredible performance from him. Chris Duarte comes up with over 20 points, uh, very nearly pulls Oregon. Uh, not just within shouting distance, very nearly got them not just back in the game, uh, got them within five a couple times in the final couple of minutes. But alas, Missouri ends up winning the game. Now, after the game, asked Dana about uh, the NCAA eligibility waiver process for LJ Figueroa, especially in light of a report that the uh, NCAA uh, Basketball Oversight Committee was going to be recommending that all transfers be granted waivers this season to play this season uh, which may be a day late and a dollar short but be that as it may sounds like it's going to be coming here sometime in the next couple of weeks uh, Altman expressed his frustration with some of the process when it came to Figueroa in particular and yes Oregon has Aaron Estrada as well going through uh, the transfer process but Dana was very forthright and said Aaron came out here and expected to be sitting out as a transfer he knew what the rules were, and there wasn't necessarily a major grounds by which to seek the waiver. Of course, you go through the paperwork, but that one might be more understandable. But the delay on LJ's waiver was frustrating to many, many, many people inside the program, none more than LJ Figueroa, who had only declared five months ago that he was transferring to Oregon. Well, fast forward to the next day, and the waiver is processed. Now, just to clear up, Correlation does not necessarily mean causation. Uh, we had been hearing, uh, and I had reported to our College Insider subscribers uh, on the text service, that uh, text message service, that is, that chances were that Oregon would be getting word before Friday's game on Figueroa's waiver. And we had been hearing that even before uh, my question to Dana following Wednesday's game and everything else, which is obviously prompted by not just, hey, what's going on, but prompted by a report that had only come out minutes earlier. 
So it was not, you know, this unbelievable, it was really a confluence of circumstance and happenstance, certainly not correlation leading to causation. That's all, just to clear that up. But be that as it may, L.J. Figueroa, who, you know, led St. John's in scoring last year, major, major player out of the Big East. Uh, Expect him to be not just in the lineup for the Ducks, I would say potentially expect him to be in the starting lineup, if not outright expected to be in the starting lineup, quite honestly, uh, tonight for Oregon against Seton Hall, a team who he knows well. He was 1-3 and three against the Pirates during his time at St. John's. Those are Big E's rivals, so expect him to be plenty motivated. Omarui was 1-2 and two while at Rutgers against Seton Hall, two in-state schools uh, in New Jersey, so expect him to be plenty motivated. And as I say, the point guard and center positions are going to be areas to uh, obviously note uh, and follow throughout the game, but Figueroa's debut will certainly be uh, the area of greatest interest uh, after he was granted eligibility on Thursday. And wrapping up on the women's basketball side of things, uh, the Ducks women getting off to a 2-0 start against Seattle uh, last Saturday and Portland on Monday. Now open up Pac-12 play against Colorado and Utah uh, starting tonight, or really this afternoon, <laughs> I should say. Uh, and then on Sunday uh, morning against Utah, if you're going to be uh, opening Pac-12 play early, I would say you would hope for uh, easier, comparatively speaking, opponents out of a league that is as talented uh, and deep as the Pac-12 is. So from that sense, Oregon got a little bit of a break, a little bit of a break. Certainly better off doing uh, this matchup early than the Arizona schools uh, in week one, that's for sure. Um, but having said that, Colorado's a team that, Hey, look, Oregon's dominated Colorado the last three years. No game has been closer than 20. They've won all five matchups. Oregon should absolutely win the game. But Colorado returns some talent, returns major players from a year ago, and is a team who is looking to take the next step. Now, again, they were well under 500 in league play last year. I'm not telling you they're going to go and win a league title or something. I'm just saying don't expect this to be a 35-point, 40-point win like you're used to seeing Oregon against Colorado the last couple of years. I do think this is going to be a little bit more competitive, a little bit more competitive, to be clear. Uh, Oregon is still the vastly superior team in terms of talent, but Colorado is obviously well coached by J.R. Payne. They've got you know some major pieces back and some youth mixed in there as well. But obviously Oregon's gotten off to a nice start. Uh, they've played all 13 players the first two games. Monday night against Portland, uh, some of the press by Portland uh, bothered Oregon early in the game. They settled down a bit, particularly in the third quarter, really broke the game open. But against bigger teams, faster teams, stronger teams in the Pac-12, going to be interesting to see who presses Oregon early on in conference play, who tests the youth, who tests some of the freshmen, who tests some of the inexperienced ball handlers on this team. That's going to be interesting to see. Now, I don't think it's going to be Colorado necessarily. Uh, J.R. Payne's been pretty pretty plain about it in that they're not really a full-court press team. It's just not what they do. Now, may they throw it out there every once in a while? I mean, and I mean once in a while, like really super sporadically in very, very select spots. And maybe, maybe just to give it a whirl. But honestly, if it's just not something they do, you don't reinvent the wheel. 
you got to, you know, you, you do what you're best at. You do what you're good at. You don't try to, you know, implement something that is just not necessarily a big part of what you do. Whereas Portland, they're a team who presses all the time. <laughs> and, and boy, did they look like it uh, at times in the first half on Monday. So, as I say, it'll be interesting to see as Pac-12 play gets underway and as it continues, uh, who tries to test some of Oregon's youth in that regard. But obviously the veteran players have been the ones who have uh, played best so far, whether it's uh, Maryland transfer Taylor Meixel, who got off to a great start uh, in Saturday's game against Seattle uh, with a career-high scoring performance and shooting performance from three. And that's saying something because he's one of the best three-point shooters in the country. Whether that's uh, Aaron Bowley uh, doing a lot on the offensive glass uh, and contributing in a big way in Monday's win. Uh, Lydia Giomi with a double-double last week, uh, last weekend, I should say, uh, in the season opener against Seattle. Um, Sedona Prince getting off to a nice start. You know, Sobley getting off to a nice start. So the veteran players have done well, a veteran either by true game experience or veteran that they've been in the program, uh, returning players, period, or experienced players, whether they be at Oregon or elsewhere. They have gotten off to a nice start. Freshmen have done okay. Nobody's done poorly. It's just, okay, yeah, hey, the veteran players are doing better, probably to be expected. Freshmen getting off to, you know, a freshman kind of start, probably to be expected. Uh, We'll see exactly how deep Kelly Graves goes on the bench uh, in rotations early on here in Pac-12 play. And as the games go on, he said he would continue to do so for probably a little while. Uh, But we'll see exactly how far that goes. Is it possible all 13 players still play this weekend in both games? Absolutely. Especially if they end up being lopsided like they have over the last couple of years against the Mountain Schools. Sure. But I'm really interested to see more about not just much, so much who plays or how many minutes they play, when they play. What is the situation when they play? Uh, does he tighten the bench in terms of early on or in more competitive spots, particularly in the first half, if they can break the game open, hey, sure, then, you know, no no doubt about it. I think Oregon could play all 13 players again. But in the most select spots, in the competitive spots, early on in games, setting the tone, getting up, and then being comfortable, yeah, I'm curious to see. Do, do the rotations get a little bit different? So that's a breakdown of all three teams a little bit in the week that was and in the games coming up here. We'll have a recap for you of the weekend, uh, most likely Sunday evening. Uh, So that way, once I get back from Berkeley and once the women's basketball uh, weekend is wrapped up against Utah and obviously the men uh, and their performance Friday night. And who knows, maybe by the time we get to Sunday evening, we learn about uh, maybe another non-conference game uh, scheduled sometime next week. If not, we're going to play at Washington uh, while football is down at Otson. Uh, basketball will be up in Seattle next Saturday. But we'll go over more on Sunday night. Until then, this is James Crepia signing off.